Thank you, thank you, worship team. So appreciate, don't you appreciate them leading us in worship this morning? We are blessed. All right, well, welcome to all of you. I'm excited to be with you today. It gives me great joy to say the following to you. Take your Bibles and join me in Ephesians chapter 1. I am fired up, folks. We are starting a new series today, and you and I are going to be walking through the book of Ephesians. I would like to establish very early on in my time here at Lamb's Chapel, I believe firmly that the greatest way to get the most out of your Bible is to walk through it in in an expository manner, and that is to say that we study it uh, verse by verse. And so we're going to be journeying through this book. Ephesians is going to take us a few months. It's going to be totally worth it. We could take a lot longer than that if we wanted to. But we're going to, we're going to understand this book in context. And we're going to understand what God is saying uh, throughout this book. It's not going to be cherry-picked, okay? You will hear me as your pastor teaching topically at times. I will teach. In fact, we're going to run on a couple of different tracks here. On Sundays, I want to be teaching through Ephesians. On Wednesday nights, I'm going to be going through various series. Some of those will be through a book or through a passage. Sometimes it will be a topical thing. We'll be doing a topical study this Wednesday. But I believe firmly that God intends for us to study his word in the manner that we're going to study the book of Ephesians. This is a spectacular book. What is so special about Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus? Let me give you a little bit of background here on Ephesus. Ephesus was a city on the edge of the Aegean. All right? It is no longer standing today save for some very impressive and well-preserved ruins. My wife and I were privileged to journey to Ephesus about 10 years ago. It is an amazing place to visit if you love history and if you love uh, uh, correlating that with what you read in the New Testament. And I hope that you get the opportunity to visit Ephesus one day. Maybe we'll go together. Who knows? All right, but this city in the first century was quite an impressive city. It was about 500,000 people, which was large for the time. It was a major uh, center of commerce. It sat on a a, a very commercial route, and so it was blessed economically. Uh, There was something notable about Ephesus in addition to that. Uh, How many of you have ever heard of the seven wonders of the world? All right, there are various lists of the seven wonders. I'm speaking of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's only one of those wonders still standing today. It's called the Great Pyramid at Giza, and it's in Egypt. Well, it turns out that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in the city of Ephesus, and it was called the Temple of Artemis, uh, also known as Diana. And Artemis was the Greek goddess of sex and fertility. She was very popular. And so this temple was dedicated to Artemis. It was a massive structure. And so the idolatry and the worship of Artemis was the principal industry in this city in addition to the trade and the commerce that happened there. And at any one time in the first century at that temple, there were employed over a thousand temple prostitutes. And so the worship of this false goddess uh, involved great immorality. This was a very, very dark city spiritually. And it is to this city that God calls the Apostle Paul. 
And he goes there and he stays there for three years. In fact, Paul is in Ephesus longer than any other locale that you read about in the book of Acts. If you want to take some time on your own to look at chapter 19 and 20 of Acts, you can see what Paul did there in Ephesus and you will find out that God used him to ignite a great spiritual revival. He preaches the gospel and many, many Gentiles, Ephesian former pagans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you can imagine how that upset the culture of that pagan city. In fact, there was a guy named Demetrius that you read about in Acts. He was a silversmith, and he had a business, and he, he made these little metal uh, statues of Artemis for people to purchase, and they, they worshiped Artemis in their homes. Well, it turns out that when all the pagans who ensure that your business is booming are suddenly converted to Christ, they don't buy your little trophies anymore. And so business went south for Artemis. So he did not like Paul one bit. And as a result, uh, this guy, Demetrius, instigated a riot in the wake of Paul preaching the gospel. Now, I've always felt that would, be, uh, uh, that would be a stamp of approval on my ministry. If I could just go somewhere and a riot would break out. That'd be kind of neat, you know. I don't want anybody to get hurt or anything. I'm just saying if I could preach the gospel and somebody get mad, flip a car over, set it on fire, be neat. But anyway, this happened. Uh, Demetrius rallies all these rabid idolaters. They all fill this huge amphitheater there in Ephesus. I have seen it. I've stood in that amphitheater. And they're all shouting at the top of their lungs, Artemis is great. Artemis is great. And Demetrius says to them, he goes, this Paul character, he's going to ruin our business. He's going to ruin our economy. And what's more, he is going to dethrone Artemis. He's going to pull Artemis down from her place of magnificence. And folks, that is exactly what happened. I have stood in that temple, or rather that amphitheater, with my wife, and we led worship Christian worship in the very spot where at one point there were thousands of rabid idolaters shouting Artemis is great and we were able to lead people in the worship and the knowledge that Jesus is great. Amen? Amen. And so it is in this city, this dark place where we see the outworking in a very literal sense of a statement that Paul later makes in 1 Corinthians and he says, we pull down every stronghold. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That happened in Ephesus. And in the wake of that, Paul leaves there. He goes to where God leads him. He ends up in Jerusalem. He gets arrested there for violating some temple regulation. He ends up in Rome under house arrest for two years and while imprisoned in Rome, Paul begins to write some letters. And he writes letters to all these churches where he has, he has started a work. And one of them is this church right here. He writes the letter to the Ephesians from a jail cell in Rome. And so this is a prison epistle. It's also what we call a circular epistle, a circular letter of Paul. That is to say that it was intended to be circulated from church to church. And so this letter would go to the Ephesians and then they would read it, they would digest it, they would send it on to the Laodiceans, they would read it, they would send it on to the Colossians and so on and so forth. And that's how the early church learned is these letters would circulate. If you've ever wondered, why are these books in my Bible? This is part of the answer to that. On Wednesday night this week, I'm gonna start a series on the doctrine of the Bible. And we're gonna go about five weeks. And I'm gonna show you 
what the Bible is. We're going to ask questions. What is it? Where did it come from? How did God, what was the means by which God delivered his word to us? Uh, Are there errors in it or not? How do we know? Can it be trusted? What is canonization? How do we get this? And why are these particular books in the Bible? Well, one short answer to that is the circulation of the letters of Paul. And this was important to the early church because it was a phenomenon. You never had this before. It was an altogether new entity. This was a new people that had never existed before. These are non-Jews, you understand. They're Gentiles, and they're embracing the Jewish God, and they're embracing the Jewish Messiah. And this is, this is not a pantheon of gods like they have worshipped in the past. This is one singular God. He does not live in a temple where we go and we congregate to get near to him. No, he comes to us. And we receive him. And he takes up residence in us. And now, if you have received Christ, you are the temple that he resides in. And because we are indwelled in him, we are united And so all of these people who didn't look the same, who didn't sound the same, they're from all these different places, Galatia and Macedon and Greece and here in Asia, and they're from all over the place, and they are now unified by this spirit that has indwelled them. They are the ecclesia, the called out ones. They are called out from their sin. They are called out from their idolatry, and they are called to the glorious position in Christ that unites them. And folks, this is still going on today. People who have nothing in common suddenly have everything in common. I came here from California. Did you ever think you'd have something in common with somebody from California? Well, guess what, baby? We got the same transcendent Lord living in us. Amen? And so we unite together. And that's what this book is about. And I'm excited to explore these amazing themes of the grace of God bestowed upon all people who would receive it, uniting us, Jew and Greek and slave and free and circumcised and uncircumcised and male and female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Let's have an adventure together. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon our time in your holy word today. Would you anoint our reading of the word? Would you excite us, God? Would you reveal to us tremendous things? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I read about Queen Victoria of England. How as a young girl, she began her reign, she had a tutor, and this tutor was educating her on her lineage the royal family, and he showed her on a piece of paper all of the people throughout the lineage of the royals. He went back and showed her all the kings and the queens of England. He showed her Henry V, the second monarch of the House of Tudor, and he he went down this list, and his finger rested on one final name on that list, and he asked her to read aloud that name, and she looked, and she said, Victoria. And he looked at her, he said, that, my lady, is you. And she said, in that moment, her life changed. And she recognized she was no ordinary English girl. She was of royalty. She was destined for a throne. And she said, that changed my life. That realization, I would live my life accordingly uh, to the, the royal nature from whence I came. Folks, that's my prayer for you. As we study Ephesians, as we look today at your spiritual heritage... The blessings that are yours by virtue of your new birth, I pray that it changes your life. Now that's interesting because in what we are about to read today, there are no directives. You're going to really like this message today. You're going to like it for the next few weeks. You know why? Because in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there are no 
commands. There's nothing for you to do, all right? I'm not going to send you home with homework. I'm not going to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm not going to tell you you need to be doing thus and such. None of that. Now, we're going to get to all that. But for now, just relax. Because we're going to teach you what you must believe, what you need to believe. And eventually, we're going to show you how what you believe impacts how you behave. All right? And so we're going to start in verse 1. Look at what Paul says. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So right there, we see who this book is addressed to. To the saints. All right, if you're a Christian, I want you to raise your hand like this. You are a saint. All right? It's not like the Catholic tradition. You don't have to perform a couple of miracles. The Vatican doesn't have to vote on you. All right? If you know Jesus, you have received his gift of salvation, you are a saint. That's what the Bible calls you. And so this letter is addressed to Christians. It is not addressed to just anybody in general. There is a a, a common practice in churches today to take any portion of Scripture and to try to make it contextual, to, uh, to make it palatable to anybody. The saved, the unsaved, the church, the unchurched, whatever. And to try to draw some life application for any, any Joe, any Jill that comes in that door. Folks, let me tell you something. Much of your Bible is addressed to the believer and the believer alone. And so we're going to read the Bible in context. And the context here is that this is a message for the church. If you are an unbeliever, if you are not a Christian and you are here today, here's what I want to say to you. I'm glad you're here. I am glad you're here, all right? You are welcome here. You are welcome here anytime. But I do want to say I can't make Scripture apply to you if it doesn't. And so what I hope is that you observe and that you benefit from seeing the church do and learn what the church is called to do and learn, all right? So, but this message is for the Christian, So he says to them, to the saints in Ephesus, in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to go through three chapters of the blessings of God for the believer. I want you to think of this book along the lines of three words. Sit, walk, stand. Everybody say sit, walk, stand. All right, so for the first three chapters, you're going to learn about your position in Christ. You are seated with him. Where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has been crucified and resurrected and ascended to God's right hand. He is in glory. And so all of your promises, your position is in him where he is. So you are seated with Christ. That is your position in him. So this is all about sit. Now, when we get to chapter four, it's about walk. And you're going to be called to walk, having understood your position in Christ. Now you are to walk in accordance with that identity, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called and live that out, all right? When we get to chapter six, then it's time to put on the armor of God and stand firm because you're going to war. On behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So you are going to, uh, to do the kind of spiritual warfare that you're destined to do. Sit, walk, stand. And so we begin with your position here in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, there's a trivia question I want to give you. What is the longest sentence in the Bible? Not the longest verse or the longest chapter. The longest sentence. Now, what I want you to understand is 
In the original Greek, you didn't have demarcations with numbers to tell you this is verse 1, this is verse 2, this is verse 3. All right. So the answer to that question, what is the longest sentence in the Bible? The answer is, it's the rest of our passage today. It's verse 3 through 14. In the original Greek, this is one long sentence. There were no periods. It just ran. All right. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read to you how this is supposed to translate into English. We're not going to put it on the screen. You're welcome to follow along as I read it. But this is one big old sentence right here. All right, you ready? I'm going to take a breath. Hold on. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and unblemished before him in love, predestinating us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he favored us in the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and knowledge, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in himself as a dispensation for the fullness of time, which is the gathering of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, and also we were chosen for inheritance, having been predestinated according to the purpose of him in whom all things operate according to the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, the first who believed in Christ, in whom you also, having heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our salvation, our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. (laughs) We got any English teachers in here? You would have flunked Paul because that is a run-on sentence right there. Uh Uh-uh, that's a grammatical no-no. And yet, It's intentional. Paul intended to do this. He wanted this to be just a wealth of words, of verbiage, articulating the vastness of the glory and the promises and the blessings of God. It's like Paul just backs up the truck, beep, 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 slams that lever and just dumps it all out. And we just just keep coming. It it just keeps coming. We keep seeing it. His secretary taking dictation must have been like, whoa, 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 whoa! Are you sure? Don't you want to slow down? He's like, nope. Nope. I want this to be a cascade of grace. I want to back the truck up. It is fire hose time. We're going to let them have it. They need to get it all. Now, we're going to break this down. This, this, passage, this whole book is the Grand Canyon of the New Testament. It's so deep. We could take four years to go through it. We're not going to, but we could. And I'm going to break this passage down. And you're going to see that it breaks down along the lines of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right? You'll see what I mean. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is the word that keeps getting repeated here in some form? Blessed, blessing, right? What is a blessing? It is something desirable that is conferred upon you freely. You don't do anything to earn it. It's a blessing. He has blessed us. Notice he says he has blessed us. It's a past tense, perfect tense. It's a past act. It's been completed. Doesn't need to be added to. 
Now, what is the nature of what we've been blessed with? What kind of blessings are these? They are spiritual, right? That's the word. Every, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. These are not physical blessings, right? When you get saved, there's no promise that you're going to drop 20 pounds. That'd be nice, right? Uh, there's no promise that your IQ is going to go up, okay? There's no promise that you're going to get any richer. Unfortunately, for some of us, there's no promise that you're going to get any taller, you know? What is the promise here? There are spiritual blessings that are promised to us. God does not bless with temporal, moth-eaten, earthly blessings. These are spiritual blessings. Jesus Christ did not have a whole slew of, of earthly things that he was in possession of. When he died, if you took everything that he possessed on this earth, it would all fit in your back pocket. Nobody followed him because of what he possessed. They followed him because of this un- intangible, unseen, but very evident eternal quality about him. Folks, when you ad- attract people as a Christian, when they are drawn to you, they are not to be drawn to you based on what you physically possess. They are to be drawn to something about you that is different. Maybe they can't put their finger on it. It is of eternal nature, spiritual nature. And how many of these do we get? How many? Every spiritual blessing. What does that mean? That means there's nothing else he can give you. He's, he has exhausted uh, the blessings of the Godhead on you. Some of my charismatic friends are waiting for the second blessing. There is no other second blessing. You got it all. God didn't hold anything back from you. He has given it all. And we are going to look at what these blessings flow from. And the first thing in your notes is this, number one, the blessings for the believer flow from the Father's sovereignty. They come from his sovereignty. What does it mean to say God is sovereign? It means he's in total control. Nothing happens apart from his control. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, all right? He chose you. If you are a Christian, it's because he first chose you. You understand? What, what did he base that choosing on? Is it something you did? Well, no, because it happened before what? Before the foundation of the world. You weren't doing anything before the foundation of the world. And so his choosing of you is predicated on the work of Jesus Christ that was to come. He chose you in eternity past based on what Jesus would do at the cross. And so in your notes, what this tells us is that our blessings are not based on human merit. Okay, you didn't earn anything. God didn't look at you and think, my, what a scintillatingly brilliant mind. I must have that big old brain in heaven. No, he didn't say that. He didn't look at you and think, man, that's a good looking guy or a good looking girl. Well, you know, we don't have enough beauty here in heaven. We need this guy. We need this girl. No, if, if God's choosing of you was based on anything other than what Christ would do for you, you'd get to heaven and it would just be an ambush because there's nothing that you can do that is worthy of that place. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose 
and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now for some people their heads explode a little bit because they're like, well wait a minute, didn't I choose him too? Isn't there a facet of my will at work? Don't I, don't I make a decision to follow Christ? I believe that you do. Does the Bible teach that man has a will? I believe that it does. Does the Bible teach that God is sovereign in terms of the salvation of mankind? I believe that it does. Well, Pastor Scott, uh, how does that work? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know. You know why I don't know? Because I got three pounds of fallen matter in this skull of mine, same as you. And there are some things that are so rich, so vast, so amazing, I can't possibly understand how it all works together. Anybody that tells you that they get it, I think they're lying or they're mistaken. The Bible teaches the sovereignty of God at work in your salvation. I believe the Bible teaches the will of man that plays a role in that. But the emphasis here in this passage is absolutely on the sovereign election of God. You were chosen in the infinite wisdom of God. The point here is that it's not based on anything you do. You can't earn it. There's nothing there. It's done. It's paid for. God does not require anything of you in terms of salvation. It is a gift of grace, all right? It's, it's done. It's paid for. A few years ago, a friend of mine called Deanna and I, my wife, and uh, he's working on a project. He's crafted this musical based on the life of Christ. We're both singers, he knew that, and he wanted to invite us to be a part of the cast recording of this musical based on Jesus' life. And that was in Nashville, and we lived in California. And so he reached out, he said, I want you to come to California or to Nashville and be a part of this cast recording. And so you know how it is when a friend asks you to be a part of something, you're like, all right, well, it's a friend deal, what's this going to cost me, you know? And so I said, well, you know, let me, let me check the, the flights, I know flights are kind of expensive right now. He's like, oh, no, no, I'm going to cover your flight. You find a flight, you let me know, send it to me, I'll take care of it. Oh, really? Okay, all right. So we did. And he goes, uh, now, uh, let's talk about where you're going to stay. And I said, well, my brother lives in Nashville. I could just stay with him. He goes, no, 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 there's, there's this four-star place. It's right next to the, the studio. Um, I'll, I'll arrange for it four nights. You just show up, you go to the counter, give me your name. It's all taken care of. I go, wow, all right. So we, he goes, hey, how are you going to get around when you're out there? I'm like, well, I guess I'll have to rent a car. He goes, I got it. I'm going to take care of it. We're going to make the arrangements. You're going to have a rental car. Wow. So we get there. He hands us an envelope. It's, it's got money in it. He goes, this is for all your meals. I'm going to cover all your meals. He goes, well, I said, well, there's a, there's a fridge and a microwave in the, in the hotel room. We just go to the grocery store. He's like, what? No, it's Nashville, man. Take your wife out for a change, you know? <laughs> he goes, go get you some hot chicken or something like that. I mean, do something. Go somewhere nice. And I'm like, wow, all right. Meals, wheels, flight room right and on top of that he paid us just to record background vocals for this project I didn't have to spend a dime on this whole thing now he could have gotten better singers I mean it was Nashville right could have been cheaper but you know what I think he afforded all this because he knew us we were in relationship he liked us and he wanted us to be a part of what he was doing folks God knows you he loves you, and he's, he wants to be in relationship with you, and he wants you to be a part of what he's doing. He doesn't require anything on your part to justify your being there. 
And in verse 5, Paul says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What kind of language is that? Adoption? Sons? What is that language? That's the language of family. And so in your notes, part of our blessings involves the fact that we have access into his family. We are adopted and therefore are part of his family. In Paul's day, according to Roman law, when an adoption was finalized, the adoptee, not only did they have all the blessings and the benefits of this new family, they were considered part of the family, but the previous family that they were part of, all of the baggage associated with that was eradicated completely wiped away. Any debt that you had, any ill reputation associated with that, shame, gone. You could not find any vestige of it. When you receive Christ, you become a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. The old has passed away. There is no vestige of what once was. You are in Jesus Christ, you are a new creature. Everything from Adam is wiped away. And now you're in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And you have a glory that Adam never even dreamed of, even when Adam was created in perfection. It's, it's greater than that. All right? Uh, some people have asked this question. You know, if God is God, and by definition God is sovereign, he knows everything, he's omniscient, well, that means that God would have known that Adam was going to sin. Why did God create Adam? Why did God continue with creation if he knew that this... That there would be a downfall and that sin would spread to all and corruption and, and, and all this stuff. One possible answer is that God, in his wisdom, wanted a greater dignity and glory for you than you could have ever known, even in the original state that Adam was in. There is a greater glory that awaits, that surpasses everything that ever came before, and it's greater because it involves what Jesus has done. It's the expenditure of the life of the Son of God that creates a glory that surpasses anything uh, prior to that. And you have access to that because the purpose of this all ultimately is found in verse six. It says that this is to the praise of his glorious grace. He just talked about our adoption as sons. What does our adoption into his family highlight? Not just the grace of God, praise to his glorious grace. It's all about the glory of God. The number one purpose that God has for humanity is his glory. The glory of God. The number one purpose for mankind is not our salvation. Ultimately, it's the glory of God. Now, your salvation contributes in the greatest possible way to the glory of God. But his glory is his preoccupation. And we are all about the glory. So in your notes, this is for the purpose of his glory. Paul had to tackle this issue repeatedly throughout his ministry. There were these guys called the Judaizers. And they would come in. Every time Paul started a church or whatever, these Judaizers were coming in. They were Jewish. And they'd come to these Gentile new believers and they'd go, well, great. This is nice. You're following the Jewish Messiah. That's that's wonderful. But you know, it's not enough to simply, you know, say you believe in Jesus. I mean, you gotta, you gotta follow the law. 
You know, you got to be circumcised. I mean, you got to you got to observe the feasts. You've got to conduct the right sacrifices and be involved in all the ritualistic things. That's how you please the Lord. You see, it's Jesus plus works. Jesus plus law. And Paul says, "Nope." No. And he spends his ministry elevating grace over law. Why is grace superior to the old covenant of the law? Because if a man were to perfectly obey the law, and by the way, that's impossible. But if he could, theoretically, who gets the credit for that? Man would get the credit for that. Who gets the credit for grace? God and God alone. Not you. You didn't have anything to do with that. You, you, you didn't make that possible. You didn't lay down your life. Your life's not a worthy sacrifice anyway. And so we have a glory because of Christ. It's impossible otherwise. And this leads us to the second member of the Trinity. Not only do our blessings flow from the Father's sovereignty, but in your notes, number two, they flow from the Son's sacrifice. The second member of the Trinity. Look at the end of verse six. This is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who is the beloved? There's a capital B there. So this is a person. Who is it? It's Jesus. He's the son of God. Why is he called the beloved? Because this sacrifice is no mechanical sacrifice. This is not something that costs God nothing. This is not just a couple of coins from his back pocket that he just tosses our direction. This is not a paltry sum. This is his beloved that he gives up. And this tells us that our blessings in your notes are costly to God. This was costly. It was precious. We're going to have child dedications uh, coming up here uh, not too long from now. I'm going to call them family dedications because I believe that we need to dedicate a whole family to God. But, but I've been to these, and if you've been to these, maybe you've heard a pastor say to those parents as they hold that precious baby, he might say to them, would you ever consider sacrificing that sweet, precious child so that another might live? And, and, and the blood drains from their face at the thought of that. Would you do that? Folks, I've got four kids. They're not perfect, but on their worst day, I wouldn't sacrifice them for you. I know I'm not supposed to talk like that. I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to love you guys, and I do, but I am a human being. And I, 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 in my humanness, I'm sorry. I would not sacrifice my child for anybody. All right? Not a friend, much less an enemy. And yet, God did that very thing for enemies. Romans 5, 7, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave up the most precious thing to him for his enemy. When you were in your fallen state, you were the enemy of God. You were a rebel against God. And you have, as Paul says in verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The word redemption there, Greek word uh, apolotrosis. Uh, there's a couple of words in that compound Greek word. The first word is luo in the Greek. If you ever learn Greek, this is the first word that you learn. Luo, you know what it means? It means to loose, to loose. The other word in there is apo, means from, to be loosed from. To be redeemed is to be loosed from that which entangles you. 
What is that? Sin. When, when Christ raised Lazarus, he comes out of the grave. He's all constricted, right? He's wrapped up like a mummy. He can't barely move. What does Christ say? Loose him and let him go. Same word. Same word. You have redemption through what? Through his blood. It says, this is the doctrine of the atonement. What is the atonement? It's that, it's that concept of God laying down the life of Jesus as a substitute sacrifice for your sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans says the wages of sin is death. He lays down his son's life, the only one worthy of meeting that righteous requirement. You and I couldn't meet it, and so Jesus had to die. That's the doctrine of the atonement. There is a move in Christianity today to eradicate that doctrine from our theology. People want to just dispense with it. It's grotesque, they say. It's, 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 it's barbaric. Ah, blood, you know, it just paints God in this hideous, barbaric, bloodthirsty light that he would demand a sacrifice, that he would put his son through that. No, no, God's a God of love. Let me tell you something. God is a God of love, but God is a God of justice. And so God must have a standard. People say, but God is loving. Uh, You're ascribing your concept of what is loving to uh, a superhuman God. He is beyond nature. Just because you can't see yourself doing this doesn't mean that he isn't capable of doing this. He is not merely loving, he is love. He is not merely just, he is justice. God is not adjectives, he's nouns. And he's all of these things simultaneously and perfectly. And so he, he put forth a righteous sacrifice out of love because we could not. And this This doctrine cannot be excised from the Bible. Every major doctrine in the Bible comes back to this. You show me a major doctrine in Scripture, I'll show you how it relates to the atonement. You cannot remove the atonement from the doctrine of the Bible. And we have redemption according, it goes on to say, to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. He he gave them. So not only are they costly, but in your notes, they're given freely. They're given freely. And I might add, extravagantly he lavished them on us notice it says that he gives according to the riches of his grace Uh, it does not say he gave out of the riches of his grace right what's the difference for God to give out of the riches of his grace or God to give according to the riches of his grace Uh, let's say that you're homeless destitute penniless you're, you're you're on the street corner you just, you're broke, you got nothing. Down the street comes Elon Musk or Bezos, Zuckerberg, pick a billionaire. He comes along, sees you, has pity on you, reaches back, takes out his wallet, takes out a 50. There's no 50 in there. Anyway, <laughs> hands it to you, there you go, and walks on. Now, did, did Elon give according to his riches? Or did he give out of his riches? He gave out of his riches. Now, you're going to take the 50. You're not going to be like, wait just a minute, sir. No, you're going to take it. But he's not giving according to his vast wealth. No, you'd, you'd be getting a whole lot more than a 50. All right? God gave according. 
Is Jesus merely out of the riches of God? No, Jesus is the riches of God. God could not give more than he gave in Jesus Christ. He gave everything. Uh, it reflects in its totality the vastness of his wealth, heavenly wealth. And this is more than just that gift in your notes. This is also an insight, this blessing, an insight into God's plan. Paul goes on, he says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Anybody like mysteries? I love a good mystery. I'll, I'll watch it. I like whodunits. I like to figure things out. I'm kind of a true crime junkie too. I watch those documentaries. I like to figure out, you know, who the culprit is and all this stuff. And, you know, I feel pretty proud of myself if I get it right. Maybe you're like that. When it comes to mysteries of God, you don't figure them out. Okay? There are no clues that you on your own power sort it out and you have a, aha, and you figure it all out. No, you only learn What's at the core of the mystery if God reveals it to you? And the mystery that is being referred to here, the answer to that mystery, the unveiling of the, of the, 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 the mystery is Christ. He revealed it in Jesus. And our salvation is the lavishing of wisdom and insight into the mystery of Christ. Jesus is the answer of all man's questions from the dawn of time. What is God like? Look at Jesus. What is eternal life? Look at Jesus. What is righteousness? Look at Jesus. What is resurrection from the dead? Look at Jesus. What is the power of God? It's Jesus. He's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Look at me. You want to know the mystery of God? It's right here. Your life is to be a glimpse of Christ in miniature form. That's what Christian means. Little Christ. When people look at Jesus, they see God. When they look at you, they see a glimpse of Christ. He goes on in verse 10. He says, this is as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. All right? Our salvation is a view into the fullness of human history. That word plan there, oh, now this is a... This is a crazy word. It, it, it's, uh, it's the word oikonomia. Oikonomia. Sounds like economy. And it's often translated as economy. It's translated as administration. Or if you've got a King James, uh, dispensation. Age. All right? Last week we talked about an age. We talked about the church age. We're in it right now. When did it start? It started when God sent the Holy Spirit. The church was born. And we're still in that age. It's still going on. When does it end? Well, we don't know. When he comes back, when will that be? You got me. Only the Father knows. What's he going to do when he comes back? He's going to start the next age. What's the next age? It's the kingdom age. He's going to reign and rule in person. Where? On the earth. And everything will be brought under the authority of Christ who will literally, physically be among us according to the scriptures. And he is going to be in authority uh, with a total reign over all the earth. And everyone will serve his purpose and worship the king. In the kingdom, what do you do? You worship the king. You serve the king. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? When you, when you, our frame of reference is now 
in this messed up place? Can you imagine living in a world where everyone is brought under the headship of Christ? Man, he says he's gonna unite all things in him. The word unite, there's a phrase there. This is a mouthful. Anakephala, uh-oh, uh-oh. Kephala means head. Okay, uh, when, when Satan rebelled, when he was Lucifer, he rebelled against God, the headship of God, right? Sin permeated the angelic realm. You had the angelic rebellion. When Adam sinned, rebelled against the headship of God, sin corrupted creation, filtered on through mankind, and we are fallen. As a result, we all sinned in Adam. Well, one day we're gonna be brought under the headship of Christ who will be here in person. What an amazing time that will be. I'm looking forward to that. I want to see what that's like when everything functions on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven. I can't even fathom what God's will is like being done in full upon the earth. And the church today is to be a glimpse of that. If the kingdom is everything under the headship of Christ, what is your life? You are someone who is redeemed through his blood who is living under the headship of Christ. So your life is a snapshot of the kingdom in full. Now you still have the old nature that you contend with, but you have the Holy Spirit. You follow the Holy Spirit. You're a mini picture of the kingdom that is to come. And there ought to be something about you that gives the world pause, that looks at you and says, something's different. I need to know more about that. And so Paul goes on, he says in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He changes some pronouns here. He goes from you to we in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Who were the first to hope in Christ? What ethnicity were they? They were Jews, right? Salvation came to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Well, now it's come to the Gentile. So Paul's Jewish. So he says, we who were the first to hope might be to the praise of his glory. He's saying, God made a covenant with the Jews through Abraham. And by the way, the church is not the descendants of Abraham. We are not Israel, not the same thing. We get in on the promise of the blessing that is Christ. We get in on redemption. There are other promises God made to the Jews through Abraham that don't just transfer to the church. God, God keeps what he promised to Abraham and he keeps his promise to those who trust in Christ. And anybody, Jew or Gentile, that trusts in Christ is a part of the church. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you're Gentiles, you've been adopted as sons, we came to Christ first, and that is to the praise of his glory, so there is no difference between us in the eyes of Christ in terms of our eternity. In our redemption, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Californians, North Carolinians, you know, blue devils, tar heels, whatever. You trust Christ. All are one. And so we move on. Not only are our blessings flowing from the Father's sovereignty, from the Son's sacrifice, but number three in your notes, they flow from the Spirit's sealing. Jesus' last prayer in the garden, Father, make them one as you and I are one. How is he going to make us one? 
What does that mean? Sometimes people look at that and they go, well, that's a, that's a verse for unity. We're all supposed to get along. No. No. We're not all going to get along right now. We're not under the kingdom yet. But you know what? How, we can still be one, even if we have different backgrounds, different thoughts in our head. What is the one thing that unites us? It's the spirit. You are indwelled. If you're a child of God, you've got the same spirit in you that I have in me that raised Christ from the dead. Paul says in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's sealing, number three. And this tells us in your notes that our blessings are a promise of security. You are sealed. That means you're secure. Okay, in Paul's day, if a king wrote a communique to somebody else, rolled it up in a scroll, put some wax on there, edge of the page, took his ring, signet, pressed it on there, royal seal on the scroll. Nobody breaks that seal except the one to whom it is addressed. You break the seal, it's under threat of death. In the New Testament, there is a seal that is the best known physical seal that we see in the scriptures. It's on the tomb of Christ. What did Pilate do? Rolled a big old stone in front of that tomb, put a seal on that tomb. Anybody breaks a seal? Now, fortunately, angels don't give a hoot about that. They broke the seal, rolled the stone away, guards were his dead men. You know why? Because they answered to an authority higher than Pontius Pilate. You got a seal on your soul. And there is no authority greater than the one who put that seal there. Nobody is breaking that seal. You know what that means? That means that you can't lose your salvation. You cannot lose. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Nobody takes you from him. John says, John 10, excuse me, John 10, uh, words of Christ, verse 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus says, you're right here. Now you're in my grip. And then the Father's grip is around my grip. Good luck getting that out of there. Okay? Good luck. No one can snatch. Now some people who are adamant, they just, man, they just are so adamant that they can lose their salvation. It's like it's the most important thing in the world to them, that they prove this. And they say, well, nobody can snatch me out of the Father's hand, but uh, I could jump out. I could jump out. And then they kind of sit back, very proud of themselves, like, gotcha. Really? Is it, that's, that's the best you got? Okay, God is so powerful that nobody can pry the fingers back on his kung fu grip on your life, but you're so strong that you can wiggle out. I don't think so. I don't think so. What kind of life does he give? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but shall have five-year life, 10-year life. What kind of life? Everlasting. Eternal. How long is that? There's no end, baby. There's no end. John 5, 24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal 
life. That would be enough right there. But he goes on. He says, he, whoever believes, does not come in to judgment. He has passed from death to life. You've already crossed over. Eternal life has already begun for the believer. Past tense. It's done. Now, look at our final verse today. Verse 14. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's the guarantee. Greek word is arabon. Uh, in another version, I think it's King James, it says earnest. He's the earnest of our salvation. I've talked about this in here before. What is earnest money? You buy a house, car, truck, you put down earnest money. What happens if you don't end up buying that thing on closing day? What happens? You forfeit. You forfeit the earnest money. Who's the earnest of our salvation? Uh, the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit, who is God? Is God gonna forfeit the Holy Spirit if you don't end up being saved, being fully redeemed? He's saying the only way you stop being saved is if I stop being God. Is that ever gonna happen, brothers and sisters? You are secure. You are secure until we acquire possession of it. Possession of what? The resurrection body your ultimate transformed state in glory. The spirit is in you now. He is a placeholder, the earnest that there is more to come and you will have a new body. We shall see him as he is for we shall be like him, scripture says. You're gonna have a transformed resurrection body. No more sin nature. No more flesh to contend with. No more temptation. You will be impervious to all that. No more love handles, amen, Right? One of these days, I'm going to be tall, you know? Either that or y'all are going to all be short. You know, one of the two, <laughs> as God intended, right? This is the promise. And what this says to us is in your notes is that this <laughs> is only the beginning. Only the beginning. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. We have so much to look forward to. We can't even begin to fathom it, but we can start to believe what we've been told. And that will make all the difference. That's all I got, folks. There's no command. See, I told you. There's no, there's, no, there's no homework, nothing for you to go home and try to improve. It's coming. Don't worry about it. You just believe, receive, and enjoy the massive amount of blessings that he has bestowed upon you, his people. Amen? Amen. God bless you all. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessings upon this group. Uh, go with them today. Help them to be reminded each and every day of who they are in you and what they have access to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.